The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hello, everybody. I can see people, uh, see the number of participants ticking up very happily at the bottom of the screen. And so I think it's time to welcome you all to the Kemble Lecture for 2020. Um, this is sponsored by the School of English and hosted in partnership with Trinity Long Room Hub. And we're very grateful to the help of all at the Hub, Eve Patton, um, Emily and Quiva, um, who've been really uh, good with their support. So thank you very much to all at the Hub. So the Kemble Lecture is the School of English's annual interdisciplinary lecture in early medieval studies, and it can embrace any aspect appropriate to the memory of John Mitchell Kemble, um, which would include uh, the literature, the history and the archaeology of England before 1100, and also approaches uh, to and appropriations of those things in the 19th century. And so this uh, Happy day. I am delighted to welcome as our speaker, Professor Claire Lees. Um, professor um, Claire Lees is Professor of Medieval Literature, Director of the Institute of English Studies and Pro Dean for National Research Promotion and Facilitation at the School of Advanced Study at the University of London. She's a Fellow of the English Association and a Fellow of King's College London. And Claire's research interests include early medieval literatures, languages and cultures of Britain and Ireland, gender and sexuality studies and histories of place and belief. Her most recent work explores how modern and contemporary poets, writers and artists engage with early medieval cultures. And her recent publications are many, but here are three. Um, the Contemporary Medieval in Practice, written with Gillian R. Overing, which came out in 2019. The Cambridge History of Early Medieval English Literature, which she edited, which came out in hardback in 2013 and in paperback in 2016. Um, the essay Gender and the Subject of History in the Early Middle Ages in the collection Medieval Historical Writing, Britain and Ireland 500 to 1500, which came out in 2019, and there are many others. So I'm really happy to welcome Professor Lees as our speaker today. And her title is Poetry and History in the 1850s, Anne Hawkshaw and John Mitchell Kemble. Thanks very much, Alice. Um, I'm honoured to be invited to present this lecture and very sorry I can't be with you all in Trinity uh, today, uh, but never mind, um, we can at least share this way. So I bring to this presentation today two strands of my work over the last several years. First, the collaborative multidisciplinary and transhistorical inquiry into the contemporary medieval with Gillian Overing, which Alice has just referred to, and which was published open access last year. The open's important. And second, a parallel project on the surprising engagement of post-war, post-war, 20th century post-war contemporary British writers and uh, with early medieval British culture. Today, then, I'm spe stepping back at least a century or so, but I'm going to take with me some of these same interests about disciplinary practices and their openness to cross-disciplinary trans-chronological inquiry, um, and a particular interest in the parallel disciplines of poetry and history. So this is signaled in broad terms by my title, Poetry and History, and by my reference to the two 19th century practitioners that I'm going to talk about um, at the midpoint of the 19th century, Anne Hawkshaw and John Mitchell Kemble. The former, Anne, will be less well known, I suspect, particularly in the context of this lecture series, uh, than the latter, latter John. Um, but I'm going to use Anne Hawkshaw's own words as a kind of guide to, to this presentation, and I'll come back to them later. Um, and the, this is the first two lines, several first two lines taken from her introductory sonnet in her sequence, Sonnets on Anglo-Saxon History, published in 1854, where she argues that tis a hard thing to judge the past aright, harder to judge the present, though it be before our eyes in stern reality. 
I'm also guided by a useful quote or aphorism that I've taken from the chapter on disciplinary responsibility in post-classicisms, which was published by the Post-Classicisms Collective last, uh, this year, 2020. Um, and the collective is a group of uh, uh, classical um, scholars um, who have written uh, collectively about the discipline of, of their, their discipline. And the quote that I'm particularly interested in is, to specialize is always simultaneously to neglect. And you can, I'm going to come back to both of those quotes in the course of this lecture. But let me first start by introducing um, Hawkshaw and Kemble. They're contemporaries, um, almost contemporaries, and uh, Anne's dates are 1812 to 1885, Kemble 1807 to 1857. Um, he died um, uh, slightly younger than, than Hawkshaw. Um, and they are contemporaries who have who, who represent different parts of, of Britain um, from north and south, both of them working in poetry and with poetry and history, both working and benefiting from, to a greater or lesser extent, uh, the colonial projects of English nas nationalism in the 19th century. And neither could be said to have a, could be said to have had a professional career, whether as a poet or as a philologist or historian as John Hay um, describes him. Let me turn first to Anne Hawkshaw and introduce her. Uh, born Anne Jackson into a middle-class, middle rural, dissenting family in Yorkshire first educated at home and then moving for, for the final years of her education at the Moravian School for Girls. She married uh, John Hawkshaw, a civil engineer in 1835. Um, he had returned to England after a spell working on engineering projects in Venezuela. In 1836, they moved to Salford. Um, in 1850, they moved to London. By 1873, um, Anne R. Anne Hawkshaw has become Lady Hawkshaw and her husband, Sir John Hawkshaw. So this is a, a trajectory from north to south and um, one very much of a rising middle class. Um, this is reflected, her travels are reflected in the publication history of her four ma major collections. Um, the first two, Dionysius the Areopagite um, and Poems for My Children, both published in London and Manchester. The third, Sonnets on Anglo-Saxon History, published in, only in London. And the fourth, Cecil's own book, uh, 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 an anthology of children's poetry uh, dedicated to and for Cecil Wedgwood, her grandson, uh, privately printed and for private circulation. But in the 1840s, um, to turn back to Dionysius the Areopagite, um, Hawkshaw was, um, is associated with the so-called Manchester poets or bards of Cottonopolis and, with, and on the fringes of, the, of radical dissenting circles. Um, but you can see, I think, the breadth of her interests um, from Dionysius, converted by St. Paul, and a long poem about Christ, early Christian martyrs, to children's literature, to anthologies, and Anglo-Saxon history. Well, what about John Mitchell Kemble? Um, born into the famous London theatrical family, um, his sister was Fanny Kemble, his father's Charles Kemble. He was educated, um, not wholly successfully, at Cambridge, um, where he was also associated with the Cambridge Apostles. Uh, Tennyson uh, dedicated a sonnet to him. And he studied, um, and then all of a sudden he took a turn to, 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 to what was then called Anglo-Saxon literature, um, particularly, and took himself to Germany, worked with the Grimm brothers, um, later became one of the earlier editors and translators of Beowulf, also known for his editions of the Vicelli book, um, and particularly, I think, his Anglo-Saxon laws, charters, and archaeology. He gave his final lecture, as some of you will know, in, on archaeology in Dublin, where he fell ill and died in 1857. But to judge from World Cat, his most popular work and, and the holdings of, of his books in, in libraries worldwide. His most popular book um, is actually The Saxons in England, which he dedicated to the Queen and was published in 1849. 
Okay, so now, Campbell Saxons in England, um, published in 1849, his last book, is one source used by Anne Hawkshaw for her 100 source sonnets on Anglo-Saxon history of 1854. She was an up-to-date reader of early medieval history. Um, other, in other sonnets she draws on, not surprisingly, Sharon Turner's uh, monumental vault, history of the Anglo-Saxons, 1799 to 1805. She also picks up and uses Francis Palgrave's History of the Anglo-Saxons, but she also draws on edited and translated collections of early medieval works, um, as as Life of Alfred, Bede's Ecclesiastical History, and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. The inspiration for the Hundred Sonnets is Wordsworth's Ecclesiastical Sketches of 1822, which was sub subsequently retitled as um, uh, Ecclesiastical Sonnets in the 1830s. So whether or not Kemble knew Hawkshaw, Hawkshaw certainly knew Kemble. So that's the 1850s, but how do we remember Kem Hawkshaw and Kemble in our in the 20th and 21st centuries and what disciplinary asymmetries can we deduce from those memories? Well viewed from the perspective of modern academic subjects neither Hawkshaw nor Kemble were particularly disciplined about the range of subjects they took into their purview. Although from the perspective of 19th century their breadth of interest is not particularly unusual. But it is certainly the case that modern disciplines remember Hawkshaw and Kemble very differently. Uh, our knowledge of Hawkshaw the poet is, is largely due now to the, to the feminist recovery of 19th century women writers in the 1990s and in particular to um, the editor of uh, the collected works of Anne Hawkshaw, Debbie Bark, in, in 2015, um, which was preceded by a series of articles. Uh, Bark also um, uh, is responsible for the entry in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography about Hawkshaw, and I'm indebted to her work, as I am to um, Isabel Armstrong's um, uh, account of Hawkshaw in the early 1990s. Um, she describes her in one quote that I particularly like as an educated poet with strong working class connections who produced orthodox seeming work with unusual subtexts. Um, and it's, it's Isabel Armstrong who included Hawkshaw in an anthology of 19th century women writers in 1996. And it's down to Isabel Armstrong too, um, that we uh, know of um, and, and have recuperated into women's literary history, the sonnets on Anglo-Saxon history, as well as the expressive effective traditions of um, some of her anti-slavery poetry, such as Why Am I a Slave, a poem that I'll come on to later, um, as well as her work as a writer of children's books and poetry. In the 21st century, the most recent engagement with Anne Hawkshaw is Chris Jones in his publication, in his study of 19th century poetry, Fossil Poetry of 2019. Uh, Jones notes that he could only find one woman writer to include in fossil poetry, and that woman was Anne Hawkshaw, he puts her in brackets. He acknowledges that he may have missed a few, um, and indeed um, we might think of perhaps the work of Helen Brookman in this regard, who has pointed out that writers and editors such as uh, Anna Gurney, um, though not formally poets, are certainly worth um, engaging with in this, in this tradition. Um, uh, and then, uh, however, uh, Jones does discuss one of the sonnets um, in Anglos, uh, in, on sonnets in, on Anglo-Saxon history in a brief paragraph on sonnet 19, which is her sonnet about Cadman the poet. So 19th century women's literature, feminist recovery of literature and medievalist studies of the 19th century are responsible for the recovery of Hawkshaw. Kemble, is the philologist and historian, is re remembered very differently. Most often he's remembered both as the first editor and translator of Beowulf, but also as irascible and bad-tempered, something that crops up in every, virtually every account um, of his work. Um, 
And he's also remembered as alongside Thorklin and Grundtvig uh, as one of the so-called founding fathers of the discipline of early medieval English studies. Um, but I've already drawn your attention to the importance of, her, of his editions of charters and laws, as well as his work on um, poetry, I'm sorry, archeology. span um, Kemble came to, 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 uh, to Beowulf very quickly, uh, very early in his career. Um, and um, he was quick to assert um, the importance of his training in Germany against the idle and ignorant scholars of Oxford in the kind of German-English debates about Anglo-Saxon studies in the 1830s. Um, S.A.J. Bradley's Kemble Lecture for TCD in 2011, which is, a, which is a study of Grundtvig, describes Kemble as a man quick to change his opinion of folk and something of a seasoned backstabber. And I've just used Donna Beth Ellard's quote um, to describe how uh, Kemble is still at the forefront of our thinking about the uh, origins of, um, uh, of the discipline of early medieval studies. Um, uh, it's a useful quote. She, she points to the so-called fathers of our interdisciplinary field and the imperial moment to which they belong. Um, and I want also here at this point to, to note the work of Joshua Davis on whiteness as property in which he makes a similar remark about Kemble. Uh, Catherine Karkoff's work um, about 19th century nationalism, 2019 and 2020, um, all of which has taken place in the context of the uh, of a, a renewed understanding of the racialized um, foundation of the discipline of Anglo-Saxon studies, um, which was drawn, which was, which we had our attention drawn to by Mary Rambram Olm and Eric Wade. And I know that there is more work on the way um, in that about the 19th century from both of those scholars. So what we can say here then is that while Kemble is firmly um, installed at the origins of the disciplines, um, uh, of early medieval studies, archaeology, literature, and um, uh, philology, poetry, uh, as well as history. Hawkshaw is mar marginal um, in these disciplines, um, uh, as well as she is yet to take up her place, I think, in studies of 19th century medievalism um, and, and studies of Victorian medievalisms. So that's where I'm going to go next. And to guide me, I want to return to that quote that I've just used from Isabel Armstrong about uh, Hawkshaw's orthodox seeming, seeming, seeming to be orthodox, but having unusual subtexts. Um, so let's see if we can think a little bit more about the breadth of Haw Hawkshaw's work. Um, her first collection of poems, uh, Dionysius the Areopagite, um, of 1842 um, includes not only um, a, a very long account of the early Christian martyrs um, and several poems about um, uh, mother-daughter relations, but three anti-slavery poems, post-abolition, uh, post-abolition in Britain, uh, Sonnet to America, Land of My Fathers, and the best known one, I think, Why Am I a Slave? Um, this, this sonnet was picked up by radical anti-slavery pamphleteers and writers on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, and while the sonnet itself um, is associated both by Bach and by uh, Armstrong with um, women's, the tradition of, an, uh, the kind of effective tradition of anti-slavery and women's writing in this period. Um, it could be said that she's um, in ventriloquizing um, uh, the voice of, of, of a slave, and that, that is a discomforting moment um, now in the, in the 21st century, uh, and it's something that, that, that we might want to reflect on. But if our children's anthologies are also seemingly orthodox and conventional, um, then um, her second publication, Poems for My Children, um, which again is a familiar anthology, um, for, the, for the period, um, includes five historical poems that are interspersed throughout the anthology, um, each entitled Scenes in the Time of, and the scenes in the time are of the Druids, of the Romans, the Saxons, the Normans, and the Crusades. Um, and, it, and she includes a, a long poem on King Alfred and his mother. Um, 
uh, a popular uh, uh, subject, at least King Alfred in, in the 1840s and 1850s. And then we could turn to her sonnets of Anglo-Saxon history, um, a hundred of them, um, influenced or shaped perhaps, inspired probably a better word, by Wordsworth's ecclesiastical sketches. Uh, though, although Wordsworth only um, dedicated about 31 or 32 sonnets to the early medieval period. Um, the rest are post-conquest um, uh, uh, sonnets. Um, and unlike um, Wordsworth, uh, uh, her sonnets draw on as a very wide range of contemporary histories and edited and translated texts, as we've already seen, Turner, Palgrave, Campbell's Saxons in England, Bede, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, Asser's Life of Alfred, though not um, surprisingly Beowulf. Um, that's something we might want to think about later. So what we can say is that both history and attention to historical evidence and contemporary evidence runs throughout Hawkshaw's poetry and throughout her poetic career. And equally importantly, it's acknowledged. Um, the, poem, the, the poem, Why Am I a Slave? Um, uh, is preceded by an epigraph which notes that Hawkshaw is reworking a Mauritian plantation Slaves Lament, which was recorded by the missionaries George Bennett and Reverend Tyrmond in 1831. She gives you the reference. Her poem on Alfred and his mum in Poems for, Our, for My Children includes a prose preface um, with a brief history, very, very short, on Alfred the Truth Teller, which is a calc on Alfredo Veridico um, from Asser's Life of Alfred. And it concludes with a, a brief discussion of Odin, Valhalla and the Jotuns, about which Hawkshaw presumes Osborg, Alfred's mother, was singing to her son. Take another example, um, the example used by um, uh, Chris Jones in, in Fossil Poetry, her sonnet on Cadman, um, on the Anglo-Saxon poet, uh, Cadman the Anglo-Saxon poet, as, as it is entitled, which Jones describes as giving to English poetry Cadman as a young Wordsworth, um, is preceded by a, a brief historical preface acknowledging be, both Bede and Hild and the poem itself, um, Cadman's poem, in the preface to the sonnet. So she knows what she's doing, in other words. Um, these are deliberate. So how is Hawkshaw um, thinking and developing her work um, in, into uh, history and poetry in the 1840s and 50s? And how is she forging a very particularly distinctive historical poetry, in part by using Kemble's Saxons in England? Well, one, the first point to make up, to, to, the first point is perhaps the most obvious, and it's a visual one. Um, in the sonnets on Anglo-Saxon history, um, uh, each sonnet is preceded by a prose preface set on the preceding praise page which gives a brief historical account and sets out documentary sources for the sonnet that will follow so here she's putting history and poetry into dialogue what I've also already said is that um, she not only does she use accurate and up-to-date sources but she acknowledges them um, she, uh, familiar pattern, familiar sequences, Sharon Turner says, see Bede's Ecclesiastical History, see Kemble's Saxons in England, and this is always in the historical prefaces. And um, I also want to say that, like all the popular histories in the period, her sonnets are very much framed within the language and discourse of English nationalism. Um, I've just used a quote from Sonnet 9, they made us England, that's a reference to the Saxons. Um, what's very clear both from the introductory sonnet that I used to open this lecture and also the concluding sonnet is that um, the, what the sequence sees history past and contemporary present as intertwined. It is a hard thing to judge the past aright, harder to judge the present, she points out in the introductory sonnet. And she concludes by commenting on the all pressing present wherein the truth gains uh, of that past lie. Um, and so for, for her, um, 
surprisingly perhaps, um, some history and poetry can be laid out differently, but they are intertwined and interengaged. So what does Hawkshaw's Saxon past look like? I think the most important and most obvious and most striking thing about the sonnets is that these are these this sonnet sequence is peopled or populated by people at places and their voices, both in the first person, that ventriloquizing that she often uses um, of their voices, but also in the third person. Um, and she uses the universalized generalist generalizing voice as well. Um, and often those people and um, places are named. It's also a history that is um, in poetry that is broadly and surprisingly inclusive, um, making a case for social popular history within the frame of the Christian history made uh, popular by Bede, both in the early medieval period and in the 19th century. And in this respect is radically different from Wordsworth's project. She uses Kemble in six sonnets, um, um, and each time, usually in, 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 con in, in context that we would now think of in terms of a social institution or even landscape history. So alongside Kings, um, from uh, we find sonnets about churls, thanes and serfs. Um, Wordsworth's uh, ecclesiastical sonnets only refers to one king, Alfred. Um, uh, whereas Hawkshaw, for example, gives us everybody from Edwin the Great, as she identifies him, to Aldrith, Knut and Harold. There are poems about, uh, dedicated to and exploring poets, scolds and chroniclers. I've already mentioned Cadman. Um, there are poems about pilgrims and mission, missionaries. There are poems about minsters, the witan, the town, the forest. And remarkably, there are poems about women, and this is where Debbie Bark's work has been so useful to me. Um, women as mother in their roles as mothers, daughters, sisters, queens, and nuns, from Athelbor of Kent to Harold's mother via Athelflath and Edith. If this sounds like a familiar and recognizable litany of um, or history. Um, now, I think that's because it's uh, this condensation of early medieval history is still current today. But nevertheless, what made it different and unusual in the period in the 19th century is that attention to those peoples othered by the written records, serfs, the anonymous, the unnamed, and throughout an attention to the inner lives of the peoples of the past, uh, framed within uh, her very familiar moral, sentimental, sentimental uh, Christian perspective, but nevertheless granting um, a, a, a subjectivity to the peoples of, and a voice to the peoples of the past. So she turns to Kemble in particular. Um, for description sonnets about the Saxons as a pastoral agrarian people, for the influence of Christianity, for um, sonnets about land history, for sonnets about towns, forests, and oddly enough, Dunstan, um, at 10th century St. Dunstan. I think in that regard, it's because she's checking her sources and supplementing, using Kemble to su supplement earlier material. In giving um, these people places, uh, people's voices, giving people voices in place in the past and an interiority, I tend to think um, uh, of, of Hawkshaw's work as a passionate identification with the past, or to use a, a term popularized by Carolyn Didshaw, a touch of the past. This is most clear, I think, in her three sonnets on um, the two daughters of, of Alfred the Great, Athelflad, Athelflida, uh, who gets two sonnets, and her younger sister, Athelyva, um, who gets just the one. Um, in each of the, these three sonnets, um, she takes 
historical material and she uses the figure of these three of these two women as a, as a, as a kind of platform from which to engage with and to explore the capacities of woman in more, more generally. In this regard, then, her two sonnets on Athelflieder, Athelflad, in the mid, at the mid-turn of the mid-century, um, are used as a kind of exam, exemplum or an example of the possibilities for women in general in terms of public and private lives. Um, you have here on your screen the first two lines of that sonnet. Uh, I'll, I'll read the first few lines to give you a little bit more of a flavour of it, and I think it will give you a, a flavour of the kind of proto-feminist um, um, moralised um, roles that women, that she imagined women could, could engage with in, in the 1850s. Woman hath trodden every path of life, though to her nature strange. Priestess or queen to whom men looked in reverence she hath been, leaders of armies in heroic strife, champion for truth when error hath been rife. All these and more she hath been and may be, and out of these may work in harmony that deeper life of hers, the life unseen. So clearly Adolf Lieder, leader of the Mercians, um, a military leader herself, um, is inspiring a sonnet about um, the capacities of women to do, met, to take on all the roles um, that she so wishes, and at the same time acknowledging that she would still can, um, that women can still have a, an interiority, a life unseen that is not um, um, public, available to the public. I want to contrast that with uh, the single sonnet on Adelieva, um, uh, often um, associated with Adelieva, Abbess of Shaftesbury, or Adelieva the Nun, um, as uh, Hawkshaw refers to her. And, uh, and here it is very clear that um, in taking the role of a nun, um, uh, uh, there is less historical evidence and less historical material for Hawkshaw to draw on in, uh, in the mid-century. In fact, very little indeed, though she gives exactly what there is from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. But she draws out a very interesting contrast with um, the better known sister. Her life is but a line upon the page of Adolfleda's story, yet it may have left its impress on that distant age. For the true hearted live not for their day, and words that pure lips breathe like winged seas may spring in glorious thoughts or worthy deeds. I particularly like those winged seeds. Um, so between Avoflida and Avoiva, uh, Hawkshaw manages to identify, give a story to, explore the history of a well-known figure from, a well-known woman from the early medieval period, Athel Flood, uh, but she also gives voice to and acknowledges the limitations of historical evidence for other women who are less well-known, such as her sister. And this is something that's characteristic of her work. I've, I've written about this elsewhere. This kind of passionate identification, um, medievalists like myself would associate, I think, with affective medievalism and with Caroline Dinshaw's work on queer affective communities and a touch of the past, as well as Dinshaw's interest in amateur medievalists, those um, non-professional medievalists, lovers, of the medieval period who have contributed so much to our understanding of our discipline. I would say that if Hawkshaw is, uh, that Hawkshaw is actually an amateur in both senses of the word, she's certainly a lover of the early medieval past. And there is nothing amateur, however, about her knowledge of women um, and of Adolf Lieder and Alflad Alf in particular. She's using the most up-to-date sources available to her from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, from Asser's Life of Alfred, um, uh, in the editions uh, 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 by Giles, J.A. Giles of 1843 and 1847. As with her use of Kemble then in 1849, Hawkshaw is bang up-to-date. Okay, so this, this the 100 sonnets were published in 1854 and it's very clear that uh, she's using a very contemporary library. 
Okay. Well, what could we do with the histories and stories of Mitchell and Campbell? Bearing in mind uh, the aphorism that I've taken from post-classicisms to specialize is always simultaneously to neglect. And also to bear in mind uh, Hawkshaw's own interest in both judging the past and judging the present. I'm not sure what I have neglected um, in this lecture. I've got some sense of what it is. But what I am clear about is that Hawkshaw takes Kemble's work in a radically new direction. She, not only, she doesn't just take then Wordsworth's work in a new direction, but she uses contemporary histories and contemporary sources about the early medieval past in interestingly radical directions. That might ask us to pose the question of to whose history would we want um, and to which discipline would we want to place or to restore a, a, a writer like Anne Hawkshaw? Does she belong in history's um, uh, accounts that are literary, historical, popular, radical, dissenting, feminist or medievalist? Would we want to associate her with the so-called forefathers of the discipline like Mitchell, John Mitchell Kemble as a possible foremother? I'm not particularly wild about the language of forefathers and foremothers. Uh, um, I think the kind of, um, I'm not particularly happy with that kind of uh, um, genealogy or kindred. Um, and I think, uh, I, and I join my, co my, my colleagues, I think in, in trying to rethink that language. Um, but there has to be a place for a woman like Hawk Hawkshaw in our inquiries into the knowledge, the knowledge of the earlier medieval past in the mid 19th centuries. What could we do if we kept our disciplines a little more open? If we worked across the disciplines of poetry and history as Hawkshaw did? What if we were to think instead of uh, future histories future knowledges uh, about Hawkshaw and, and create possibilities, possibilities for her in, in, in future discourses? Would we want to place her more in, in, in circles associated with the radical poets of Manchester or novelists, Manchester novelists such as Elizabeth Gaskell? Um, would we want to know more about her circles in London after all, this is a woman who ended up um, with a grandson um, who uh, married into the Wedgwood family uh, and a lady at that. Um, do, would we want to know um, whether Kemble and Hawkshaw actually knew one another? I don't have yet the answers to these questions. I do know that Kemble's uh, archives, um, scattered as they are, are far more comprehensive than Hawkshaw's. But would we want also to explore her as a voice in British anti-slavery literature post-abolition, um, as well as a figure in 19th century women's literature and historical poetry? For these last two questions, and for some possibilities about open knowledge and open disciplines, I want to acknowledge the work of my colleagues in the Institute of English Studies um, here, particularly Christopher Ogre, who is the lecturer in um, uh, digital approaches to literary studies, um, for his own exploration of anti-slave literature in, in the first half of the 19th century. And also, of course, to acknowledge Isabel Armstrong, who is uh, a senior research fellow in the Institute. Um, and it is because I think I've had the opportunity to work with uh, within the Institute of English Studies that I've been able to broaden and open uh, my own disciplinary inquiries. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Claire. I'm sure, I think everybody I'm sure is clapping, <laughs> but, but inaudibly because of the nature of the, um, of the event. Um, 
I was thinking that I would need to give people a little bit of a pause to work out how to ask questions. Um, we have a little bit of time for questions now, um, so for 15 to 20 minutes. Um, and for those who may not have realized this yet, um, we don't have the chat function open, but there is a Q&A function where you can type your questions and I will then uh, read them out. And that way it's fairly easy to manage who's talking when. Um, but in fact, we already have a question, which is wonderful. Um, so Claire, we have a question from Jane Toswell and it's delightful that the online format means Great. that we can have um, people like Jane Toswell joining us. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, so Jane Toswell writes, it seems that Hawkshaw, unlike Anna Gurney, the Mrs. Wilkinson and Gunning, or even mm -hmm. Mary Conybeare, did not have Old English directly. She does not refer to the editions of Old English by Thorpe. Does she refer to Conybeare? Does she speak about the complexities and difficulties of the language? Now, that's a great question, Jane. Thanks very much. I mean, it's, been, it's striking to me too, as well. Um, I think she doesn't. I think she's working. I think she has Latin, um, but I don't think she has Old English. But there is a hint that she's aware that she doesn't have Old English um, in one of the sonnets. I think it's one of the early sonnets where she actually is playing with compound phrases. Um, and I forget which are, that are reminiscent of uh, of. Um, uh, uh, of Anglo-Saxon poetry. So I, yeah, she, she's, she's working as a popular historian and contemporary poet, but not with, the, uh, uh, as far as I can see, a direct knowledge of early medieval English poetry. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good point. And in this regard, she is very different from some of the other women uh, working um, in the period. Though perhaps not so different from some of the popular novelists um, women novelists who are popularizing, popularizing um, early medieval and later medieval history, uh, largely through the history of queens and things like that. So she's an interestingly odd figure in that regard. Okay, we, we don't actually have another open question in the Q&A for the moment, so this is the bit where I get mine in. Um, <laughs> um, so Claire, can I ask a little bit more about um, the publication of Hawkshaw's books. So you've given us the date and you've pointed out that they're published in, mm -hmm. um, in the North and in London. Uh, but I was wondering what kind of circulation are we talking about? Yeah. How widely do we think she was read? Well, that's a, a, a nice question. And in some regards, this is a bit like Beowulf, the, which I suspect is more widely read in the Victorian period than it was in Anglo-Saxon England, um, early medieval England. Um, I do think, that Hawkshaw's 100 Sonnets is not that well known. It's a rare book. It's now a rare book. Um, but it was, 13 of the sonnets were republished from Sonnets on Anglo-Saxon History in the Manchester Guardian. Um, and it, the book got several, it garnered, it got, garnered about a, a good deal of reviews both on both sides of the Atlantic. So it, it had a Manchester following in a Manchester reading, and Debbie Bark points out that her obit, her obituary in the Manchester Guardian, definitely um, acknowledges her work as a poet. Uh, so she has circles, um, but she doesn't have a, a wide, uh, as wide a, a dissemination as, as Wordsworth's ecclesiastical sonnets by any means. I think, however, her time is coming now. That's the way that I'd want to put it. Um, and I think that, that that's what I mean about keeping, keeping our minds open and our disciplinary stance open. I think she's got a lot to teach us now. Thank you. Um, we have a question from Emma Newding. Uh, she says, really rich lecture. Thank you, Claire. I was wondering what you thought about Hawkshaw's intended audience of these sonnets. Are they more poems to children? Are they aimed at women? I say because they seem very didactic, both in terms of guiding readers to historical sources through explicit references and in terms of praising moral qualities. Hi, Emma. It's nice to, to, to have that question from you. Um, and thanks very much. I think that the, the, the poems in the collection, Poems for My Children, are aimed at children and they are instructional. That's, that's very clear. Um, and there is a strong didactic element in the 
first collection throughout it's not just um, associated with um, the early the medieval material in that collection as well um, Dionysius Areopagite there's a sense of there is a sense of a kind of self-educated um, didacticism coming through but sonnets for Anglo-Saxon on Anglo-Saxon history is not aimed by any means at a, 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 a an audience of children I think it's aimed at a, an educated broad general readership I think she has aspirations to be acknowledged both as a poet and a poet of a serious poet and a poet who knows her stuff I think she's doing interesting things as I, I tried to argue with both the history and the poetry um, it is within a kind of sentimental moralizing frame um, and it certainly isn't to everybody's taste um, but it is part of our understanding of the uses of the early medieval past by later British writers. And in that regard, I think she's worth studying. So I think, I think she does have, um, I think she has within her sight, very firm aspirations. Uh, the, that collection, Sonnets on Anglo-Saxon Poetry is published by, isn't it Longman's? I forget now, I'll have to go back to my slides. Um, so I think, I think, uh, and it is throughout, she's got a London publisher as well as a, a, a Manchester publisher. So um, this is a woman who is, is serious about her writing. Thank you. Um, Wendy Skase asks, was her work reviewed at all? Yeah. As a, yes, it was. Um, and it's all in the collected edition by uh, edited by Debbie Bark. Um, the not only so the Guardian, Manchester Guardian, as it was then known, um, not only reviewed it, gave it a long review, but in, reprinted, as I say, 13 of the sonnets, including, I think, the first sonnet um, on Athelflaed. So um, women were getting a press within the press. Um, in Manchester, but it was also reviewed not wholly satisfied, um, not 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 particularly warmly, but acknowledged um, in the Athenaeum um, and uh, and within. I think there's about 13, 14 reviews that Bark collects. I think there's probably more out there. I just think we haven't looked yet. Um, but yes, she's she's certainly within within the review literature and the, the her children's poetry gets more widely reprinted than the Anglo-Saxon poetry, Sonnets on Anglo-Saxon um, history, but the, and the, the poetry, the anti-slavery poetry does move into um, uh, post-abolition circles as far as I can tell. So she has these different paths throughout her work. I'm particularly struck by a woman who um, seems on the one hand to be quite conservative, instructive, instructional didactic, perhaps moralizing, um, but nevertheless using um, and taking and drawing on different voices um, uh, from the past in a period that wasn't doing that, um, who is the same one who's writing sonnets um, about America, about uh, why am I a slave, um, and at the same time also quite capable of writing about the early Christian martyrs. It's a really incredible breadth. Um, and pertinently to that connection with the um, why am I a slave, Mary Clayton asks, could you say a little more about her depiction of serfs? She has about three or four in sonnets from Anglo-Saxon history um, on, uh, on, on serfs. Again, there is this, uh, uh, what, what connects those sonnets to the anti-slavery sonnets is this passionate, intense identification with the undertrodden, um, a, a very strong uh, commitment to freedom, um, uh, a condemnation of, of um, a, a society that, that um, not only tolerates, but profits out of slavery on the one hand, serfs on the other, but at the same time, giving voice to those, those those people and also granting them their lives. Um, so it's a very interesting mix. Patricia Gillies asks, thanks uh, for an excellent and thought provoking lecture. 
Do you think that Hawkshaw may be going back to the 1798 Coleridge Wordsworth lyrical ballads where the poor and the mad were given voice? Definitely. Those usually voiceless and othered. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, yes, definitely, because she certainly read her Wordsworth and these are romantic sonnets. On the other hand, I think she probably, you'd probably anticipating to some extent Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Um, so I, th I think it would be lovely to reconstruct her, 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 her library actually i wish i could um i think there probably is some way of doing that um but she's certainly um within mainstream romantic traditions but also these narrative voices that that she's using make her quite contemporary so both going back to early romanticism but in the 1850s as well 1840s 1850s I'm, I'm risking that a bit because I'm not a 19th century scholar. So this is where my specialism lets me down a little, but I'm keen to, to explore it. Um, you, the questions are coming uh, thick and fast now, actually. Um, <laughs> Judy Kaup asks, um, well, she says, thank you for a great lecture. I was wondering if Anne showed interest in countries other than England, apart from the anti-slavery poems. And how would you situate those other countries in her work? Oh, does she have a globalizing perspective? Mm. Says Claire, reaching for her edition. There's at least one poem about in Dionysius the Arab Areopagite about on Palestine. Um, so that would be a very productive um, way forward. There is an orientalizing um, trait traces in some of the sonnets on Anglo-Saxon history as well. Um, so um, not an intense focus, but certainly within sort of the early Christian sonnets and poems and int an interest in, in the Israel, Palestine, as you might expect. Um, I think it's possibly more there, but I haven't, I, I'd be, I was too taken up with the sonnets on Anglo-Saxon history. Um. Margaret Connolly's question actually relates a little bit to what you were talking about just now, um, mm. but she writes, have you thought about what libraries Hawkshaw might have used? Given mm. that she lived in Salford, Manchester, might she have used either the Rylands and or Manchester yeah. Central Library? Yeah. Library well, records might reveal some influences on her? Yeah, Rylands what didn't, wasn't, um, uh, didn't open until 1907. <laughs> so not the Rylands. But certainly um, I would want, I have thought about parallels um, between Enriqueta Rylands and um, those, the, 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 the earlier 1840s in Manchester Salford, this kind of um, dissenting radical poetry that, that is circulating in that period. And yes, I would love to be able to reconstruct um, her library from the sources that she uses in, in in, in her books um, and in her, her collection. So it should be possible to do that. Um, and it would be fun to do that. Uh, so working in, you know, work with her work um, and some of the, her early reviews as well, actually now I come to think about it, would are certainly associated with Salford and Manchester. So it should be possible to do that. I, I'm feeling the lack of, I don't know if, if Christopher Ogre is on this call, but I feel like I should, I'm having a silent conversation with him because I suspect he knows far more about that period than I do. Um, but there's more to come out there. Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Um. We have a, a question from Chris Jones, who's been mentioned in the lecture as well. Um, so Chris Jones says, thank you for such a great lecture, Claire. Which sonnets did the Manchester Guardian choose to publish? And is there a pattern or an agenda apparent in which ones they selected? Were they published all at once in the Guardian or serialized over a period of time? Thanks. Oh my goodness me, I have to remember all that. I'm looking it up now. So which ones and Which ones? There's 13 of them. I think they were hmm. all published in a sequence um there's a okay 1854 uh manchester guardian review published the big first one uh the second one on what we would call the adventus um which is largely taken from kemble actually then there is uh one on conversion uh, the three on bead. Um, I'm just, I'm, I feel like a, a one on the uh, called undercurrents on serfs and slaves. Uh, one on the serf. 
one on Alfred, two on Alfred, one on the true workers of England, one on Athelfleda, one on, um, shall I keep going? It's all in the same piece. Uh, one on um, uh, the aftermath of the Battle of Hastings and then the concluding sonnet. Um, so it's, it's in, that isn't the only review she gets for her work in uh, Lancashire or Manchester circles, but it's quite a significant uh, group of texts. It's nice to see Athelfleda in that. Chris, does that answer your question? I've forgotten now. Well, he was asking which sonnets did the Manchester Guardian publish and were they published all at once? Yeah, um, so I think I've just read out the range of them. So, so a selection from the beginning, the end, um, from about Alfred, Bede, Avalflood, but also serfs, undercurrents, slaves, um, and they were all in one review. Though it wasn't the only review that, that the Guardian published. Ah, so they were they were in a review because I was going to ask a follow up question in my own of yeah. is this her choice of sonnets? No, 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 no. This is, is it, yeah. No, no, no. Um, she was reviewed. I, I, she was reviewed all over Lancashire. I hadn't quite realised that. And it's not the only place where, in the reviews, they were reprinting this sonnets. Okay. Um, so um, or, or the children's anthologies. So there was. Um, she, she garnered reviews in Blackburn as well as Westminster, for example. So she had some content. If we, if we don't have multiple copies of the book now, we could presumably trace more about her through the review literature. Okay. Um, that for the moment seems to be the end of the questions. There aren't any questions open now. I have to admit, I keep thinking of more questions myself, but I think I should probably resist um, because we're coming to the end of our allotted time. Um, so I guess what I would like to do is, Claire, thank you very, very much for this fascinating lecture and for your energy and generosity in answering the questions which came um, very quickly after each other. Um, and, oh, no, there is a question, which we do have time for, brilliant. Um, so one more question from Elizabeth Okasha, um, oh, asking where the reviews signed? Um, I, I think, I think Debbie, I'd have to check. I think some of them are anonymous and some of them are actually signed and known, particularly the Northern ones, but that's a great question. And that would again help us trace a kind of the, the network or circle that she was work, moving within in the 1840s and 1850s. Because remember, by the time of the publication of Sonnets on Anglo-Saxon History, she's living in London. She won't move to London in 1850, four years before the publication. But her reviews are, are mainly, her most substantial, her longest reviews are, are, are still back in Manchester. Um, and I'm a Manchester girl, hey, so. Um, so I'm, I'm hesitant now because I don't want to choke off any more last minute questions. Um, I mean, we do have another comment uh, from Margaret Connolly saying, thanks very much for a very informative talk, Claire, and for introducing me to Anne Hawkshaw, really interesting. And I think that's what I want to, to say too. I have to admit, I didn't know about Anne Hawkshaw before. And now I will go off and read some of her work, which is always the best thing to produce, I think. Well, I, I hope it is. Uh, for a That's speaker. great. Thanks it, very it, much. It just, thanks. You just made her sound so interesting and so much worth studying. Um, well, thank you so much. I've I've yeah. been wanting, uh, I've been waiting for an opportunity to 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 do a lecture on Hawkshaw for about five years, and so when I was when you invited me to give the Kendall lecture, I just knew that this was my opportunity. Um, so I I hope you will all uh, read her work now. Thanks very much, Alice. It's great. Um, Yes, and again, Wendy Sky says, thank you, Claire, I've learned a lot. So, I, yeah, um, so it's been, it's been great. And thank you to all of you who tuned in for this. Um, it's a curious experience being part of a lecture of this type where you can't see um, your fellow members of the audience. Um, but there is a community of us out there interested in this material and now um, warmly keen to go and read Anne Hawkshaw. Um, so I, um, Thank you a couple of times, but no harm in thanking you again, Claire. Thank you very, very much. Um...
The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.